Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining me tonight. Just wanted to offer a warm welcome for those of you who have recently arrived. And I don't know, a continuing welcome for those of you who've been here for a while. So I hope you're all settling in more and more, feeling more and more at home here in this powerfully peaceful environment with these very supportive conditions that help us to incline the heart and the mind towards freedom. So just before I launch into this evening's Dharma talk, I just wanted to acknowledge that one of the challenges of teaching here at the Forest Refuge is because people are arriving at all different times, some of you have been here for many months already, some of you maybe just a few days, so inevitably what we choose to talk about, it's not going to be relevant for everyone. And this particular month I chose to focus on the meditation factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And in making that choice, it doesn't mean that the other aspects of the path, they're not, they're also worthy of deep attention. So in other contexts, at other times, I really appreciate being able to explore perhaps more contemporary issues things like climate change, the environmental crisis, all the different forms of social injustice, and so on. And these are, of course, very powerful challenges that we do want to include in our Dharma practice. And I'm very happy to explore them with you in the individual meetings, if that feels relevant. For this particular sequence of talks, though, I've been focusing on the meditation factors with the hope, the aspiration that by strengthening both wings of wisdom and compassion, by deepening insight, our hearts and minds will be better resourced so that we can face into those broader societal challenges as well as the everyday life challenges of just being a human being. Okay, so with that as a little bit of context, I'd like to continue exploring the seven factors of awakening and picking up from where we left off last week, just to look a bit more closely now at the awakening factors of tranquility and samadhi. Now, it's possible if some of you have just arrived, you might be thinking, phew, I'm still reverberating from all the stress of trying to get myself here. I'm not sure that I'm ready to be diving into deep calm and mental steadiness. And maybe even those of you who've been here for a while, you might be thinking, wow, I'm still reverberating with the stress of just trying to get my laundry done. I'm not sure I'm ready to be diving into deep calm and mental steadiness. So maybe you recognize that phenomenon. At least I've noticed in my own retreat practice that stress expands to fill the space available. And we can find ourselves here agitated by the slightest things that in ordinary everyday life probably would barely register. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. 
There are few reasons why I chose this theme of the awakening factors, the bojanga, to use the Pali term. And one is that they're just inherently uplifting, inspiring, pleasant qualities of mind. And so they can provide a refreshing change from perhaps the more familiar and afflictive states like the five hindrances. So this is how the UK Dharma teachers Christina Feldman and Jaya Rudgard describe the awakening factors. They say the bow in Bojanga derives from bodhi, wakefulness or liberation, and anga from the Pali translation of limbs. And these limbs or factors describe qualities or capacities that we already have. They're present in our consciousness. And they're the seeds of potential reality that we're invited to nurture, to identify, to appreciate and strengthen. And in the early texts, these qualities are referred to as inner wealth or as the seven treasures that protect us against pain and adversity and instead incline the heart towards awakening. And the Buddha said that when these seven qualities are cultivated and brought to fruition, they free the mind and heart from all forms of bondage and suffering, and they incline towards liberation or nirvana. And if we ask ourselves, what does the mind of a Buddha look like? My understanding is that the mind of a Buddha is infused with these seven qualities. So they're pleasant. And the second reason I chose to talk about them is that cultivating and strengthening these factors is a key skill in Vipassana practice. It's really the culmination of all the different meditation methods that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta. Because without them, our practice can't deepen and provide the kind of transformative insights that offer that true freedom of heart and mind. And yet, at least in my own retreat experience, as I mentioned earlier, we tend to hear a lot more about working with the hindrances than we do with working with the awakening factors. So part of what I'm trying to do here is to, in some ways, demystify them and show that they're actually more accessible more available to any of us than this term awakening factors might suggest. And I've been profoundly inspired actually meeting with all of you in the individual meetings to see and to hear how these factors are already alive for so many of you. So those are some of the intentions for this talk series. And just As a quick reminder for those of you who haven't been at the previous talks, the seven factors. First one is mindfulness, pretty much always necessary. We need to know what we're doing as we're doing it and to know that we know. Because pretty obviously, unless we know what's happening happening in our minds, we won't be able to recognize any of the other awakening factors. So mindfulness comes first. And then we have three factors that tend to brighten 
our mental energy. And these are investigation, effort or energy, and joy. And then the three last factors, these tend to quieten our mental energy. And they are tranquility, samadhi or absorption, and lastly, equanimity. So these are the seven, and although I'm focusing on them, unfortunately, we can't just ignore their opposites, the five hindrances, because there is a reciprocal relationship between these two sets of mental qualities. The awakening factors can't arise when the hindrances are present, and vice versa. The hindrances can't arise when the awakening factors are present. Now, all through the development of our Dharma practice, we can see how the afflictive states are gradually being weakened. And in their place, the beneficial states, the awakening factors, are gradually getting stronger. Now, of course, this is not a nice, straight, linear development. There are always fluctuations. But as I just mentioned, every one of you here is already experiencing some degree of these awakening factors. This is the direction and development of practice. So the direction is towards more and more refined levels of awareness and the consequent ease and peace that that brings. So tonight I'd like to focus on the awakening factors of tranquility and samadhi. And I'll begin with just a brief overview of them and then explore how they relate to each other before coming back and going into just a bit more detail. So as with all of these awakening factors, the preceding one naturally supports the next one to emerge. And so Caroline and I, in the past week or so, we've been really highlighting the quality of joy. And this joy, we can experience it to varying degrees of intensity. Sometimes it's a more subtle quality of appreciation, gratitude, contentment. And other times it might amplify to delight or rapture or bliss. And Joseph Goldstein explains that this factor of joy or pity has the function of refreshing and delighting the mind and body like a cool breeze on a hot day. So you might get a sense from that image of the cool breeze on a hot day how joy naturally gives rise to feelings of being refreshed and at ease and calm. And that calm develops into the awakening factor of tranquility, which can be experienced as increasingly profound stillness and serenity of body and mind. So with any of these awakening factors, the first stage is to recognize how do they show up for us? How do they feel in the body and the heart and the mind when they're present? So even right now, you might just take a moment to tune in 
and to sense, is there any degree of tranquility present right now? Now, of course, this is all relative. So if you've just arrived, you might not be experiencing the most profound stillness and calm ever. But perhaps compared to when you were traveling to get here, now you are here, there's probably at least a bit more serenity. So if we think of a scale for these awakening factors where zero is no trace whatsoever and 10 is the most intense you've ever experienced, as you tune into tranquility now, you might just raise your fingers and just give a sense of how much tranquility is present now. So maybe a 10, maybe a 6, maybe a one and a half. Anyone willing to give me a sense? Yeah, great. So there's a range and it's fluctuating. And if I asked you again tomorrow, it will be different. And I'm offering that not just for entertainment. It is a useful skill to develop, to see in any moment the relative strength of these skillful qualities. And very importantly, to do it without judgment, without self-judgment. So we're trying to bring this attitude of kind curiosity to what's happening in our minds. Otherwise, the aversion of judgment can interfere with the development of these factors. And I think perhaps particularly with tranquility, we need to train in recognizing it. Perhaps it's the easiest to overlook and to underappreciate because, at least in mainstream culture, we're so used to being consumed by busyness and constant doing. And so when some of that activity starts to slow down or even stop, there can be a sense of, well, now what? Nothing's happening. And in my own practice, it took quite a while to appreciate what an important role tranquility plays, not just in refreshing the mind, but supporting the next factor of samadhi or absorption to arise. So the way tranquility does this is by making it much easier to recognize the presence of the hindrances. Now, in the context of ordinary everyday life, when we are much more stimulated and agitated, it can feel that the default setting of our minds is a, like a swirling kaleidoscope of sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and doubt and plenty of other afflictive states too. But as we learn to stop turning the kaleidoscope and the mind becomes more still, that tranquility reveals what's going on much more clearly. And the suffering of the hindrances becomes much more obvious. And we naturally want to let them go in favor of experiencing more of that tranquility. Now, to try and get a sense of that process, I'd like to bring in a maybe a more visual metaphor now. It's a, it's a painting that I, some of you may know of. It's a painting, if you want to take a quick peek, 
by the American Expressionist painter Jackson Pollock, who some of you may know did these kind of paintings in the 1950s. This particular one is from 1948, and it's officially called Silver Over Black, White, Yellow, and Red. But I think of it as a portrait of a mind experiencing a multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) So to some eyes, it might look like a chaotic mess. But what if we were to deconstruct this painting in the reverse order that Jackson Pollock made it? So metaphorically, this is like the process we go through of calming the mind and clearing it of hindrances. So if we take out some of these touches of yellow and silver and scarlet and Indian red, once some of that more surface-level agitation is gone, we can see the black curves and the thin gray and white lines underneath more clearly. And because the mind is quieter and more still, the impact of those black and gray and white marks is very obvious in a way that wasn't so clear earlier on when there was so much else going on. So as we taste a little less agitation, we naturally want the mind to become more still. And with practice, all of that visual noise of the splatters and the splashes and the arcs and the blobs fades away into stillness and silence. And the mind becomes steady, gathered, unified into samadhi, which in this visual metaphor, it might be the blank canvas that's underneath all of that paint. Now, that's not a perfect metaphor, and maybe it doesn't make sense to some of you, so if so, just let it go. But the intention is to try to illustrate how as the mind becomes more tranquil, it's easier to see what's interfering with deepening calm and steadiness. And as the mind becomes more and more free of those afflictive states, it very naturally settles into samadhi, the experience of absorption, unification of mind, the state of unwavering and effortless awareness that's usually experienced as pretty pleasant. Now, as most of you know, the word samadhi is commonly translated as concentration. But several teachers these days, they suggest that that's maybe not the most helpful translation. Because in English, the word concentration, it just has these overtones of a forced or narrow, even fixated attention. So there can be kind of furrowed brow efforting And that very effort often interferes with samadhi from developing. So some other translations are unification of mind, indistractability, unwavering attention or absorption. And these words point to how the mind in samadhi is naturally gathered and absorbed in the meditation object. It's almost like there's a magnetic attraction and the attention doesn't move anywhere. It becomes completely steady. So again, 
we might play with this and tune in now just to see as you're listening to this talk is some degree of samadhi present now maybe on a surface level your attention is engaged maybe following the words responding to the meaning but if you perhaps drop below that there might be some degree of steadiness gatheredness maybe that's quietly pleasant so again if zero is no samadhi whatsoever the mind completely scattered agitated unfocused and 10 is the most steady absorbed mind you've ever experienced just invite you to raise some fingers now and see how much samadhi is present and is it different than for the calm yeah thank you for being willing to do that it's really helpful to see the range and again if i asked you in an hour asked you tomorrow it will be different so as we learn to recognize how strong or relatively weak these qualities are we also recognize what conditions support them so whether or not you've touched into the deepest states of samadhi here on this retreat every one of us we have experienced moments at times many moments whole phases when the mind does become more settled and what a relief that is now in daily life we're constantly bombarded by sense contacts stimulated by sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches and thoughts and all of these sense contacts are impinging on our consciousness thousands of times a second and we don't even recognize the impact of all that until we have an experience of its absence when the mind becomes settled and absorbed and unified into just one experience so this awakening factor of samadhi gives our whole nervous system a rest a profound rest that satisfying nourishing and at times blissful now this bliss is one of the potential challenges of samadhi too because it can be experienced as so pleasant it's easy to get attached to it and as one meditation teacher said there's nothing that ruins your retreat quite so much as having a really good sitting so we have a sense we taste that samadhi and then suddenly we have a whole new benchmark of what we want to happen and that chasing after it as we know interferes with it developing so we want to keep in mind that like everything else samadhi arises due to conditions and even though it can be profoundly pleasant it's not the purpose of it is not just to bliss out for its own sake the purpose of it is to use that stability of mind to support deepening insight so this is how the canadian monk ajahn tiradamo who's in the thai forest tradition he describes samadhi he says the main quality of samadhi 
is a very focused stability of mind, which also manifests as an energy and strength comparable to focusing a spotlight. When the mind is focused upon a single object, the subjective experience is one of exceptional mental calm, quiet, and ultimately silence. The usual internal dialogue of interpreting and analyzing and discussing is reduced and eventually ceases. And the mind can seem extraordinarily clear and lucid because it's focused on just one particular object. And we can appreciate how helpful this is for increasing the level of our awareness. So in that description, just to emphasize what Ajahn Tiradamo says about how our usual self-referencing dialogue gets reduced and eventually ceases. And again, what a relief that is because it allows deep calm and clarity to come up instead. So as I've been exploring this sequence of how the seven awakening factors are laid out, I've been appreciating more fully the connection between tranquility and samadhi, how samadhi emerges naturally from the ease and calm of tranquility and not from forceful effort, which is how so often we approach it, in the beginning at least. So remembering how in my last talk I made a distinction between what I called will-driven effort and dharma-driven effort. Though actually even to say dharma-driven is not so accurate, because when we let go of pushing and allow the dharma to do its work, The momentum of practice coming from that is not self-referencing, and it can feel completely effortless, quietly joyful. So even though these awakening factors are laid out in a list, in actual practice, as many of you have experienced, they shift and shade and morph into each other and work together to deepen the mind into these increasingly profound and pleasant states. So I've been appreciating how tranquility has a precursor, and that precursor is the experience of joy, of contentment, of satisfaction. So again, we can't force this kind of ease to arise, but what we can do is set up supportive conditions that make it more likely to happen. And in a way, coming back to that painting, one of the first things we need to do to find more calm is to clear out the hindrance of restlessness and worry, or worry and flurry as it's sometimes known. Because obviously restlessness and worry are the direct opposite, the antithesis of tranquility. And this is easier said than done because possibly restlessness and worry are the most dominant characteristic of many people's lives today. Thanks to technology and the increasingly fast pace of life and all of those different societal pressures that we experience, 
due to capitalism and many other structures that push us into competitiveness and isolation and inadequacy and so on, many of us find ourselves swimming in restlessness and worry much of the time. So I mention that just to give a sense that it's not our own personal shortcoming if we arrive on retreat and we can't instantly drop down into profound peace. For most people, this is just an organic process and it takes time for all of that agitation in the heart and the mind to stop reverberating quite so intensely. So we need to have patience with this process because trying to force ourselves to be tranquil is just going to create more tension and agitation. So what we can do is try not to force that process, but just settle back, make space, and trust that tranquility will emerge of its own accord as the conditions support it. So in terms of our practice outside of formal meditation, there are a few things we can do to help support tranquility. One is simply slowing down. And even here on retreat, we can see that tendency to rush, to lean forward, to be looking for the next experience, and the next, and the next, and the next. And Joseph Goldstein suggests that we try to really notice that feeling of rushing, of being slightly ahead of ourselves and sort of energetically toppling forward. Because this kind of energetic excitability doesn't allow for the ease and the composure of a tranquil mind. So he suggests using the simple phrase, when walking, just walk. And that reminds us to settle back into the moment as we're moving around. Settling in without efforting or striving, without wanting something, not leaning into any destination. We just stay with the simplicity of each movement, moment after moment. When walking, just walk. So on one level, it's pretty obvious that it's hard to develop calm if we're speeding around on autopilot. So we can try to go just a little more slowly than we normally would without forcing it, because this will create tension in the mind. But metaphorically, we can experiment going from 50 miles an hour to 40. And then when we get used to that, we might slow down to 30 or 20. Because the slower you go, the more you'll know. So slowing down is one way we can support tranquility. Another way is traditionally known as guarding the sense doors. And this is an aspect of renunciation. And it means making the conscious choice to avoid unnecessary stimulation. So we let go of some of our more habitual ways of seeking distraction in the service of deepening and maintaining calm. So here at the Forest Refuge, we're already living in a fairly simple environment. 
nevertheless, at least based on my own experience, it's amazing the ways we can find to just give ourselves a little bit of stimulation here and there. And one of the ways is um, even though we're invited to put aside our phones and our other devices, it's amazing what effect those can have if we do choose to use them. And again, in my own experience, I have at times been on retreat here in the past and found a reason that seemed really valid, really needed to use that phone. And I've got a lot of mindfulness. It'll be fine. And wow, <laughs> the effect. It's really good to see that. And even outside here, I try at least once a month to have a day of being totally technology-free. And every time I do it, I'm amazed how by the end of, a day, of the day, there's a background level of buzz in my mind that I hadn't even realized was there until it's gone. And that buzz just amplified by addiction to devices. So really doing our best to put aside those unnecessary stimulations. And then in terms of our formal practice, we can keep orienting the heart and the mind in the direction of calm without attachment to results. And in fact, just remembering the option is useful. The Buddha is reported to have said that Quote, frequently giving attention to calm is the nutriment for the arising and fulfillment of this factor of awakening. So yesterday morning in the guided meditation, I brought in some of the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta, where it says, one trains thus, I shall breathe in calming the bodily formation. One trains thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formation. So we can experiment with just dropping in the word calm at the end of each out-breath and each in-breath, just as a gentle reminder to help incline the body and the heart-mind in the direction of ease and calm and tranquility. And as the mind does become more still and refined, we can start to notice how we're being mindful. And at times we can even notice that the way we're practicing mindfulness can have a subtly agitating effect on the mind. So there are many different ways that we're invited to practice sati, mindfulness. And some of them can be misunderstood or misused in ways that actually hinder calm. So again, in the context of my own practice early on, I would hear all this talk about refined attention. And I took that to mean very tight pinhead focus, even fixation, on whatever it was I was paying attention to. And on one particular retreat, a longer retreat, this very unconscious over-efforting in the mindfulness created so much tension in my mind that I actually passed out. 
because the energy had become so unbalanced. So I thought I was being really mindful, but it wasn't balanced by the other awakening factors. So at that stage in my practice, I don't remember having heard any instructions about tranquility. But if I had, I probably would have ignored them (laughs) because I was so caught up in misperceptions about right effort and assuming that real practice, serious practice, requires constant striving. And again, because tranquility is such a quiet and calm state, it can be easy to overlook it. And even more recently, as I at times put together these talks on the awakening factors, quite often I'll realize I've only got six out of the seven. And the one that's missing, quite often, is tranquility. Perhaps because it is so peaceful, it just it doesn't call the attention in the same way that some of the other factors do. Now, it's possible some of you might have noticed something similar in your own practice. Many people, especially in the beginning, are just not used to calm that's so deep. And because it feels like not much is going on, sometimes it can feel like we've actually lost our mindfulness. We can mistake the absence of experiences for an absence of mindfulness. But actually it's just that because there's so much calm and stillness in the mind, there's less to pay attention to. So if that's the case, we need to refine the mindfulness to become more subtle so that it can tune in to the more refined experiences that are still happening. So as the tranquility gets deeper and deeper and the mind becomes quieter and quieter, sometimes I think it might be a bit like scuba diving I haven't done this myself, but I've at least seen it in nature documentaries and so forth. And I can imagine I've done um, snorkeling. And, you know, in the beginning, we're on the surface of the sea. and We're looking at all the reef fish and we're getting very refined awareness. We're playing in the waves and we're aware of other swimmers. But if we start to go down below the surface, as we go descend deeper into the ocean, all of those surface fish disappear, there aren't so many shoals, there's less visual stimulation. And the deeper we go, the quieter and darker and stiller the experience becomes. There can be a sense of seclusion and contentment that feels more refreshing than all of that stimulation back up on the surface. And as this serenity deepens, it flows naturally into samadhi. So if you can imagine being really deep in the ocean and there's just this unwavering, undistracted, absorbed and unified quality to the mind, And this absorption can be experienced to different degrees of intensity that are known in the suttas as the jhanas. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of what 
each of the jhanas are now. But just to say that the early development of jhanas, the first ones, they're usually characterized by, at times, intense experiences of rapture or strongly energized forms of happiness. But as the jhanas deepen, the energy of them becomes quieter and the earlier bliss and happiness give way to contentment and then to equanimity. And this is also where all of the awakening factors are heading, towards that profound steadiness and balance, where the heart-mind is free from any form of wanting or not wanting. So again, the purpose of these different degrees of samadhi is to support insight. And as the Buddha said in the Connected Discourses, for one who is concentrated, one knows and sees things as they really are. So to put this in more contemporary language, the U.S. Buddhist teacher Shinzen Young, he compares samadhi to a microscope which is also an instrument for seeing clearly. He says you have to have a microscope before you can see the fine structure of the cells of your hand. And you have to develop some of this samadhi power before you can see the very significant deep structure of your own psyche, your own mind and body. So in other words, without the steady and focused quality of samadhi, we won't be able to see through our conditioning those structures in our psyches that tend to keep us caught in endless self-referencing. So this is a powerful form of renunciation. And in the advanced stages of this practice, Shinzen Young describes the nature of samadhi as detachment. And he says, realizing this marks an important step along the path to the attainment of mental power. In real samadhi, one simply rests the mind on the object at hand and then proceeds to let go of everything else in the universe. So that's quite a lot. (laughs) So one simply rests the mind and lets go of everything else in the universe. So that's just a brief overview of how tranquility and samadhi work together. And as I said, I've been really inspired by hearing how so many of you are working with these in the practice meetings. And I also know that at times there can be challenges that come up when we shift into these more wholesome mental qualities. So as the hindrances gradually weaken, as they are for all of us, at times they disappear altogether. And occasionally this can be a little bit disconcerting. We're almost addicted to thinking And we've got so used to wrestling with our problems, wrestling with sense, desire, and aversion, and sloth, and torpor, and restlessness, and worry, and skeptical doubt, and all the other afflictive states that can assail us. 
yes, they're unpleasant, but they're familiar, and at least when they're around, they give us something to do. So when the hindrances start to be less predominant, it can feel like there's nothing happening, or even that we've lost our mindfulness, because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. So sometimes people will come into meetings and say, well, nothing's happening, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? And so I'll say, well, when you say nothing, what do you mean by nothing? Is there any quality of calm? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's quite calm. Is there some degree of steadiness? Yeah, actually, now you mention it. Is there some quality of just acceptance and equanimity? Oh, yeah, yeah. So what we're calling nothing is actually a beginning experience of more of these awakening factors coming into play. So there can be a gap in those early stages between the refinement of our mindfulness and the refinement of the mind states. And so as the mind states become more refined, the mindfulness needs to be equally refined to be able to recognize what's going on. So we need to train ourselves to recognize how it feels to have a mind without any of the hindrances. And although that phase might not last very long, every moment where the mind is free of the hindrances is helping to loosen some of our so-called karmic knots, those deeply conditioned patterns or structures in the psyche those deeply identified with stories that we often spend so much time and energy on retreat wrestling with. And at times, this loosening of the karmic knots, because we're so used to being bound by them, when they start to loosen, it can feel like unraveling or even falling apart because some of our usual defense mechanisms and personality habits and self-protection strategies are starting to dissolve and we might find ourselves on shaky ground. And again, in my own experience, that some of these times I've noticed there can be a kind of internal backlash when we touch into some newfound spaciousness. And one symptom of this is that the habit mind can go into overdrive frantically trying to sabotage this newfound peace by telling us all kinds of ridiculous stories and fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios, anything at all to shift us out of this more open, peaceful way of being. So the trick here is to recognize that backlash for what it is and just to see, okay, That's what that is, an attempt to sabotage and not to believe it. So this phase of the practice, it can be uncomfortable at times. And so we might need to bring in immense patience and kindness and self-compassion. And as best we can to trust that everything we're experiencing, it is part of a natural unfolding So a few years ago, I found that 
out that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to refer to meditation literally means getting used to it. And this idea of getting used to it, it can be interpreted in many different ways. But I found it very helpful in relation to those phases of the practice where there is a sense of being in new territory of some kind. And then the meditation is simply a way of getting used to it. Kindly, patiently acclimatizing ourselves to this new and unfamiliar terrain so that eventually we're able to stay in the terrain of all seven awakening factors for longer and longer. And profoundly transformative insights can arise of their own accord. So coming back to where I started this talk, the purpose of these insights is then to inform how we live the rest of our lives outside of formal meditation, outside of retreat. And although over these last few weeks I've mostly been focusing on the wisdom aspect of this practice, the heart is just as profoundly transformed. Really there's no separation. And these two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion, they come together and they help us to live our lives in a way that brings benefit not only to we ourselves, but to everyone we come into contact with. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to experience all of these awakening factors more and more fully for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thanking the reflections on the sharing.